Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I am absolutely delighted to have as my guest today, Lisa Gable. Um, Before I get into the conversation with Lisa, I want to invite everybody to like, share, and subscribe. We need your support. We welcome your support. And I think conversations like the one that we're about to have are really important. Uh, I think our nation needs it. And I think without the ability to have these conversations, uh, we're going to be a nation that's not as well off as we would like. So uh, to be clear, uh, I welcome your support. With that, let's get right into it. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, Todd, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I want to dive in. You are uh, launching a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to the book, um, we kind of start off with the food allergy issue. And I had have, I've had the pleasure of working with you in a variety of different contexts. So I've got kind of a 360 degree view. Uh, I've, and I've, as I kind of laughed in my email to you, I've always left inspired by, by our interactions. But talk a little bit about the food allergy situation we have in the United States and, and its origin and why you got interested in this. The food allergy arena is growing greatly and it is an epidemic. 85 million Americans avoid buying food with the same top nine proteins due to having anaphylaxis, which is a severe life-threatening allergic reaction, food intolerances, or because they live with people who have one of the above. It's an issue that's been growing in the medical community since 1998. Really before 98, sort of uh, when you and I were growing up, you didn't have a lot of people with allergies. You would hear about shellfish allergies. You would hear about perhaps, you know, peanut allergies, but really beginning at that point in time, we had children developing multiple allergies. We have board members who have children. In one case, the child could only eat 15 foods. They could only eat 15 foods today due to oral immune therapy. They're up to 30 foods, but they actually had a feeding tube because of the nourishment issues that were related to their inability to eat. And so for that population of children, those parents came together and said, we need to have a medical community focused on this. And that was really what began the impetus of what today is a nascent disease category. I'm the CEO of FAIR, and FAIR is the largest NGO that is dealing with life-threatening food allergies and investing in research and education and advocacy. We have clinical networks at 50 major medical institutions, but it is still a growing space. And it's one that's causing great concern, both for children as well as adults, because we have adults who are getting food allergies later in life. So I might have my years wrong, but my recollection from my research was that there was a particular spike between 1996 and 2007. Is that roughly correct? That is roughly correct. Okay. Uh, as we say in consulting, directionally correct. So tell me, what gave rise to that spike? 
There are a couple of different hypotheses. We're not sure, but what we do know is that in the late 90s, doctors began to tell uh, parents, uh, telling pregnant women as well as new parents, not to feed their children the allergens um, until they were about two or three years old. And that was the wrong information. What we know from something called the LEAP study, which was co-funded by FAIR, is that by feeding a child peanut early and often, starting between four and six months old, for the first two years of life, actually decreases the chance of that child getting food allergies. And so that was one of the issues that popped up. Secondarily is we have what's called the hygiene theory. And that is the fact that at that same time period, people started to get very, very clean. You had a lot of cleaning products. We were using hand sanitizers. Uh, you were really seeing a great cleanliness. People were moving into cities. They were moving out of the country. So they weren't getting exposed to, you know, to dogs and dirt and all the other things that children have exposure to that actually builds their immune system. And that is a critical part of both of those issues. You need to build the children's immune system by exposing them to the things that cause the allergic reaction. And the third area that is really an area I am not an expert in, so don't ask me the details on, are the issues around the gut microbiome. We hear a lot about probiotics. We hear a lot about irritable bowel syndrome, gut microbiome. That's an area that the doctors are heavily exploring and doing research in right now uh, because we do know that that is causing issues, particularly for adults who are developing these allergies and intolerances from foods they've eaten their entire lives. So... Uh, an unintended consequence of this rush to cleanliness was has been a deterioration in our immune system and our, our response to it, uh, which raises a couple of questions. You know, one, the immediate uh, question is whether there's a correlation between this analysis and COVID yeah. uh, and whether or not we should be doing things differently to create or enhance our immune response to COVID. And the other question is, is there a correlation to obesity, because the CDC came out with a big report yesterday that said obesity is basically doubled in the last year. Uh, let's start with the COVID analogy. Is there an, a correlation there? You know, I, I believe that we will see many unintended consequences from mask wearing, from keeping our children uh, in the home and not exposing them to other children. When you get exposed to other children, you, you know, you catch, you catch things. And everybody knows, my daughter, as you know, is a preschool teacher. And, you know, she's constantly getting sick because she's exposed to all of these kids who are getting sick and passing things around. That's actually a good thing. It builds your immunity. And so. So she'll, she'll live to be 150. She should live to be very, very long after all of this. And I even remember when she was little, all of a sudden you started getting ear infections. I'm like, I haven't had an ear infection in 35 years. Why am I getting an ear infection now? Uh, but uh, but I believe that doctors really aren't sure what's going to happen. I mean, you see this, this push and pull. Obviously, medical professionals are concerned about young children who are catching COVID and the life-threatening nature in some cases of COVID, or at least uh, uh, the illnesses and the potential long-term impact of that illness. Yet at the same time, as children are going back to school, again, using my, my daughter as the preschool teacher, you're seeing kids getting sick a lot earlier than they normally would during the normal cycle of the school year. And so they actually had an uptick in the August timeframe of a lot of kids getting sick that maybe they wouldn't have gotten ill until sort of October. Uh, so I believe it is something that we're going to have to deal with. And it's something that uh, we will have to anticipate as we try to live with this disease of COVID, because we are going to 
live with it and we're going to have to figure out how to live with it and how to manage it effectively without shutting down um, you know all of our lives through the process so that's one i know you mentioned obesity and as you know i ran uh, the largest public-private partnership, the largest industry commitment uh, that was a relationship between the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Michelle Obama's team at the White House, and 16 food and beverage companies focused on decreasing calories in the marketplace, taking out sugars and fats from the product portfolios. And we saw great results from that. But don't forget, during the last year, we had a lot of people sitting at home not out exercising, not out having that daily movement, even between walking from their car into their office or walking their kid into the school, we've been highly sedentary. And we've also, as adults, we've been drinking a lot. So, you know, alcohol has its own factor. And I'm sure there was a lot of ice cream thrown in there and other things. So it's not surprising to me that you would have seen the numbers go up. It seems like a very high number, but at the same time, We've all been inside. And so that lack of active, healthy lifestyle that we normally have when people are shutting down playgrounds and parks and you can't go out running, it's not surprising to me that that would be one of the side effects. Well, I was trying to draw on your two experiences, one with allergies and the other with uh, the weight um, the weight management approach that you guys employed uh, to see if there was a correlation between the allergies and obesity. Uh, there's not really a correlation between between those two issues. At least I haven't seen a correlation between them specifically for life-threatening food allergies. So it, it hasn't popped up in the world that I've been living in, or at least the research I've been exposed to. Somebody may call into this and go, oh, I know of a study, but I haven't personally seen one. Well, the reason I was asking is because it seems to me if you have limited food choices uh, and those food choices... Um, you know, you, you get bored eating the same stuff all the time. So does that lead to bad dietary habits? And I don't know the answer to that, but I just uh, was curious about that. So tell me how you, you have a monstrous resume. I mean, what a, what a professional career you've had, um, you know, starting as the youngest person in an administration and, uh, and going all the way to your current role uh, that you've announced you're stepping down from in, uh, in uh, early next year. Tell me, what got you interested in, in this particular job, this particular uh, task? Why allergies why, and why fair? Well, I love challenges and I like to fix things. And so throughout my entire career, that's been my job. People bring me in to take an organization to a higher level of performance, or they bring me in to turn around that organization or at least change the dynamics so that it has a, a better economic structure, more sustainable structure for the business, no matter what that business is. Well, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit. I mean, that's right, exactly. It's all about revenue. You still have to pay for stuff. So, you know, there is a, and there, there's an economics of the business that term applies in government applies in nonprofit supplies everywhere and it's something that people uh, within the nonprofit field don't always understand or agree with they're like well we're doing good things well that's great but you still have to pay for it you got to pay salaries etc what happened in fair's case is that fair is the result of a merger of a grassroots organization and a research organization that happened in 2012 and in fact we're getting ready to celebrate our 10th anniversary after that merger and, um, and the economics of the business did not work. And so the organization was struggling. I had actually been called about the original search. And then at a later point in time, they were looking for a CEO again. And I was called about that search also. And in both cases, I was doing the work I described with uh, Michelle Obama and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the company. So I couldn't take the job, but I kept giving them names. 
2018, it turned out I got the phone call from Corn Ferry and, uh, and it was a perfect time for me. And they outlined for me the, the rise of the disease, the fact that it was a nascent disease category. So it required having a large scale infrastructure, medical and research infrastructure developed to support it. And then they also introduced me to the board of directors through the search process. And I turned down a lot of jobs at that time. I'm in a place financially where I have a little more flexibility to say no to different jobs because I like to work with people who are committed to accelerating progress and that I feel have sort of the business experience to partner with me on what the steps are required in order to take that organization to the next level. And I was amazingly uh, just touched and impressed by the quality of individuals who were doing the hiring for the job and, uh, and was thrilled and excited to uh, take this opportunity. There's nothing that gets me more excited than, you know, rolling up my sleeves and digging in and traveling for 18 months straight and, you know, fixing an organization's infrastructure and design to get it economically viable and raising money. So it's been a wonderful role for me. And it's an incredible uh, community of committed individuals and, uh, and even the, the, affection I have for these amazing teenagers who live with multiple food allergies and all that they're doing and our young college students and rising leaders, you know, we're really seeing the first round of kids as kids born in 98 who are finally entering the workforce. So as somebody who also likes to mentor people, it's been a really nice side benefit of this relationship. Fantastic. So I've been talking to a friend about philanthropy and I mentioned to him that I was asked to contribute or donate to an organization recently. And I felt uncomfortable with it because I, in my estimation, they didn't have a business model that was sustainable. And his comment back was, Todd, you need to understand that investing as in philanthropy is the same as investing in business. And it may be more difficult. So finding the right team, finding right the business models are, are, are all challenging. And I think one of the issues that you likely had to grapple with was in the nonprofit world, as you mentioned earlier, uh, people are particularly, um, uh, I guess, unaware of the needs for a sustainable business model. They just assume that people are going to contribute because they feel as passionately about the topic as those working there. Is, did you, I, I presume you, you encountered that. Is that correct? I absolutely have. I mean, what we recognize in the food allergy space is that uh, unlike certain diseases, you know, where St. Jude's has children who are going through horrific medical experiences, and it's very sort of physically apparent that that child's going through the experience or March of Dimes. And, you know, you, you have pictures of babies who, you know, have been born prematurely, that pulls heartstrings, that type of of engagement really gets people to open their pocketbooks. In the food allergy space, we have children who look healthy and, and they are healthy predominantly most of the time. And so unless that child goes into anaphylaxis and you're exposed to what happens to someone and you mentioned that you yourself have gone into anaphylaxis due to your own allergies, it's very hard to comprehend. It's very hard to, to build that sustainable element and also as, as people are starting to go through therapies and, um, and as more accommodations are being made, we don't have that heartstring element uh, that pulls in large scale philanthropy. Our philanthropy averages about $20 million a year from the philanthropic money. 
so what we are doing at FAIR is that we are actually developing revenue generating activities that will drive money into research. And so we're investing in data and that data will be used by the researchers, right? But at the same time, that data is data that people can buy and use to help design innovative products. We have the FAIR Clinical Network, which is 50 major medical institutions, and we have them in three different categories. One is the transformational research, which also does large-scale clinical trials. We have the clinical trial group, and then we have standards of care. And so, again, the monetary benefit of that infrastructure is that we're now participating in clinical trials and helping drive patient recruitment for clinical trials. That works for research because it dry, it helps FAIR create the financial means to drive more money into basic research simultaneously is because we are also keen on ensuring that there is a diversity of a patient population included in clinical trials. We're providing not only a benefit to those who are paying us, but also a benefit to the disease in general, because one of our key areas of focus is ensuring uh, that we do have black and brown patients as participants in the trials. And right now, clinical trials, as you know, tend to be 75% Caucasian. And so that's not good for science and it's not good for uh, treating and meeting the needs of different populations who are struggling and suffering from a disease. And that makes all the sense in the world. It, it seems like this is just an exercise in uh, best practices uh, across the board. So, you know, kudos to you for that. Tell me, tell me how did you then decide to codify this in the form of your book? And what are your ambitions with the book? Well, I appreciate your asking. I've got my book turnaround is coming out on October 5th. And what I have done is focused on how I use the manufacturing principles I learned at Intel Corporation and intertwined those with the art of diplomacy that I learned at the White House and at the State Department. And what I really focus on is what it is that I've done in business, government, and philanthropy to turn organizations around. And when I started speaking with my publisher, I was down the path of writing a book on leadership and mentorship. And as you know, leadership and character are areas I want to pursue in, as I move into a, a different retirement or phased approach in my life. Uh, but he said, you know, Lisa, turnarounds are going to be critical for across all spectrums. It doesn't matter if it's a church that's struggling because nobody's been in the congregation or if it's a Fortune 500 that's struggling. You have worked on all of those things and the same principles apply. And what I focus on is visualizing the future, wave your magic wand, understand what you want the future to look like. What you need to do is mentally tear it down to the ground if the organization is really struggling and say, if I was starting this organization from scratch and I wanted it to look like that, what are the steps I would take? What would the organization and how would it be built? Then you go and you audit the past. You figure out what you've done. What you're looking for is the underlying cause of your disease. What's caused this organization to reach the point that it's at right now? Why is it struggling? And sometimes we have this tendency to tweak. We're tweaking. We change this a little bit. We change that a little bit. And the reality is that sometimes we're actually not getting down to the basic underlying cause of our problem. And then you build a path from the past to the future, that future that you visualized. And that I always talk about decision trees. In fact, I was just with one of my team members developing a decision tree, which enables you to go through a very thoughtful process of ranking and rating and evaluating the value of something and how much you're going to invest in it and what you're going to do with it. 
And then lastly is executing with speed, confidence, agility, and most importantly, heart. And I think especially right now, and it's one thing I talk a lot about in my book, is recognizing that a turnaround impacts people. And so you might be doing a massive restructuring, which results in layoffs, people losing their jobs, or you may be changing someone's job so dramatically that it's not really what they wanted to do. And it's not the thing that makes them want to wake up in the morning. And you have to really understand that you need to spend the personal time with those individuals. I find very rarely that an organization that's struggling is filled with bad people. Instead, it has people that have been impacted by circumstances, economic circumstances, so even a more neutral term, uh, but they're people and that's going to impact their lives and their livelihood. And you may see these people again. So how you manage their exit, how you manage uh, helping them improve their performance, recognize that I've been around now for a long time in the business sector, almost 40 years. I've seen a lot of people over and over again is we're all in this together. We all want to see organizations be effective, but let's also think about putting ourselves from the point of view of someone else and how it's impacting them. Yes. What I found in my career similarly is it, it you know, the fact that somebody is not a good fit for a job, it does not make them obviously a bad person or implicitly or inherently incompetent. It just means it's not a good fit for their skills, which if you can get them to a place where there is a better fit, they'll find happiness and joy in the work and, and be more successful in that environment. So it's, you have to kind of think about it a little bit differently. Um, having said that, you know, I think one of the big issues the nation's facing is that, you know, this, this coming transformation as we go to skill sets that are not widely held. You know, we've talked a little bit about social media, for example, it's a hot spot, but there's a, an undersupply of talent in that space right now. And, you know, so we are at a critical need. It, it's such a, a vibrant part of our economy, but we still just don't have enough people doing that at the same time. Those who are displaced by the rapid rise in social media are going to feel similarly uh, expelled. So we got a we got a lot of work to do there. I think as a country, so you you're now looking at uh, leadership, and I really want to focus on two words you used in in your last set of remarks that were both power, but very powerful for me. The first one was leadership. Mm-hmm. And the second one was character. So how do you get to a definition of leadership? And then how does character, and first of all, get defined? And, and how does that inform leadership in your estimation? Well, we all have the opportunities to be leaders. And sometimes it's thrust upon us. And sometimes we are part of a group that can lead. I have always been a glass half full type of person. I have never looked at a situation and not thought about the fact that I can rally the troops and we're all going to run up that hill together. Um, and, and for me, that is being empowering yourself to be a leader. But the other element of leadership is knowing how to behave professionally and knowing how to act within the moment. A leader is not a heavy handed individual, um, although there are going to be times we all have stress in our lives where, you know, you may not act the way that you, you feel always positive about how you acted. But a leader is someone who, you know, you prop them up. <laughs> One of my staff members always says, he goes, Lisa, will push you and push you and push you. And then she'll pick you up, she'll give you a hug, she'll dust you off, and she'll send you up again. <laughs> and so for me, that is, uh, that's one element of it. And that's the second piece. You know, I talk about character. And again, it's the empathy. 
character is not only having a, a very strong moral compass, but one of the things I always stress, whether you're in government, a nonprofit, or in a business, you have to remember that you are responsible for the spending of other people's money. If you're in government, you're spending the taxpayer's money. If you're in a nonprofit, you're spending the donor's money or the activist money. If you're in a business, you have shareholders. People are buying your products. They're your customers. And you should never put your own personal position, what's in it for you, above the people whose money you are some way, shape, or form touching the spending of that money. And I am always stunned at the hubris I discover when I go into turnaround situations. And what I discover is when someone is led by their own ambition and they forget that they are a temporary steward of the institution they serve, that institution goes on beyond them, but somebody's giving you a paycheck because that's what you were a steward of. And so you have to comply with the rules that are established within the organization. And I fundamentally believe if people do that, in addition for understanding uh, the point of view of someone else, the impact of their actions on another person, that that will build the characters of leadership that we need in order to run up those hills and be successful. So it's interesting that you say that because you're using terms I think are more substantive and affirming than the way that others might address the topic. And by that, what I mean is, what I just heard you say is, which I think is, again, very powerful. You're a temporary steward of the institution you serve. You are. That's we all die. We all end. We all take jobs. We all leave jobs. We're no, but, only here for a period of time. <laughs> but, but that's different from uh, in, in my world, a, a private equity guy, a private equity person coming in and saying, yeah, we got to implement cost controls, mm-hmm. right? So ultimately they, they have similar functions, but by describing it in the way you do, you're touching the, the moral compass of the individual with whom you're speaking at a different level. You're engaging them differently. You're, it's a whole person engagement. It's not just uh, flipping the circuit breaker in the person's brain around financial controls, but rather, no, it's more than that. It's not a, it's not just a financial control issue. And it's funny because, uh, that is the way that, you know, I was raised inside of, uh, EDS, which is a company that was founded by, by Ross Perot and, um, and carried on for four, almost 40 years before being acquired. But the, the leadership strength that comes through that kind of a dialogue is what distinguishes really, really formidable, high quality leaders from their contemporaries, but also in, in my view, humbly, allows for the sustainability of the, the very values you're, you're creating in the organization. In other words, I'm still using aphorisms I learned at EDS 30 and 40 years ago. Um, but if I had said, hey, we need to put in cost controls, it wouldn't have nearly the emotional integration that I have with the idea of uh, the comment you just made, which is we are all temporary stewards of the institutions we serve. Um, and the fact that I've now recited that twice without having ever heard you say it before just shows how powerful that is. 
And it also gets into the fact that cost controls are a moral activity. And some people see them as an immoral activity because again, it impacts people, right? There's always something, there's always a, a thing that's going to be impacted, but that institution is not gonna survive unless those cost controls are put into place. It will be unable to fulfill its ultimate mission. And I, and I tell people a lot of times, I say, go back to your bylaws, go back to your founding documents, why did somebody start this institution? Why did they start the business? What problem were they trying to solve? Why did they start the not-for-profit? Why did you start the church that you started? Why did you start this government program? It had a purpose. But what happens is that when we continue to put our own self-interest on a day-to-day -day basis in front of the purpose for that institution, it will be unable to fulfill its ultimate objective. And, you know, my dad taught me, and I really, um, so much of the book talks about things I learned from my father, but he always taught me, he goes, you need to be able to walk out the door at any point in time, one, because somebody may make you walk out the door, so you're not going to have a choice in the matter, or two, because it's time for you to leave and pass the mantle of leadership. And so the most important thing for you to think about is if that happens, whether because they make me leave or because I choose to leave. Will all that hard work that I have done for that institution continue to thrive upon my departure? And as you said, you know, I announced my retirement from FAIR in the spring of 2022. It's eight months away, possibly. But one reason I did that is that I want to ensure that everything we did, we just went through a massive restructure. We traveled a lot. We raised a lot of money. We've accomplished wonderful objectives. I want the next person to come in to take the organization to an even higher level of performance. I want that person to have even more experience than I do. I know that I am not the ultimate leader of bringing FAIR to where it needs to be, but I am highly focused on wrapping it up in a blue box. I say like the blue Tiffany's box with the big bow on top. I want it to be perfect when I walk out the door because at that point, they will continue to accelerate progress. I don't want to leave something for somebody to fix. I want progress to continue. And I have a school in the book. I talk about a school that I helped start. It's one of the very first partnerships between a school system and, and a set of companies. And it really was touted in a lot of magazines as being sort of the prototype for how STEM should be managed at the school level. I check on that school. It's now been since 1992. Four. I go online, I check on the rankings of that school every single year. And I am extremely proud that that school is still one of the top 10 schools in STEM in its state. <laughs> I want that to always be the case. So the important message there is that your legacy is not having, having achieved anything in particular, but rather leaving a fertile opportunity for further growth of the organization and the way you measure your own success is by the success of the people who stand on your shoulders. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that is, that's, what's going to accelerate progress. We are a great nation and we have been given, I've lived all over the world and we have been given the opportunity to grow things. We've been given the flexibility to grow things. We've been given the flexibility to make sure that uh, individuals have, have the right to vote. And we've kind of implemented that through the way that we manage business. And that's okay. But the reality is 
we only want to continue to grow this great nation. And we can do that by investing in our people and making sure that the institutions in which we are in charge only continue to accelerate in their progress. They may merge with somebody else. Mergers are okay. Acquisitions are okay. There's multiple paths forward. I was in Silicon Valley starting in the early 90s. And you know, I, I look at some big guys and where they kind of merged and where their technology is today. That's progress. And that's what we always have to keep in mind um, as we as leaders are building out our piece of the puzzle because it is only one piece of the ultimate puzzle. So we started our conversation around the topic of allergies. Um, and that's, that was an important conversation. And we learned some things in this conversation about allergies and about how they've spiked and why. But the real meat, in my view, has been really around leadership and character. And I think there's another subtle nuance to the conversation that's really important to draw out, which is uh, the, the nature of the communication about the topic. Um, and so I think that's really powerful. And I, I really salute you for putting this all down, uh, I think others would have shied away from the challenge and I'm glad you took it on. We need this. And I, as I'm looking out in the, you know, the current political environment, um, it, you know, I'm, it's not, I'm not suggesting it's limited to this administration, but it's, we've had this for several administrations where we've had, in my view, just a stem discern challenge with finding good leaders. And I'm not sure how we solve that other than having people like you come to the fore and write important books about leadership that get put into curricula that people study. Um, are you seeing that? Are you, are you starting to get some early signs that schools may be ad adopting your book as a way of, uh, of discussing this issue? I do. And I've been so pleased that a friend of mine who's a professor at Catholic University uh, in their MBA program has the book being part of his syllabus now. And a friend of mine who runs a program at another major West Coast institution is uh, looking at including my book in the syllabus for his business diplomacy program. I mean, one thing about the book is it, it is a different business book, right? It, it tells you the methodology. And so you do get the checklist of what it is that you need to do. But secondarily, is it uses storytelling. I have been blessed um, throughout my life, as you know, Todd, that I've, I've encountered, I've had this amazing life where I've encountered throughout my experience within the United States and abroad, some of the biggest names in government, some of the most well-known elected officials that I've personally worked for, uh, some of the most famous CEOs, you know, people who've been in that Fortune 50 list. Uh, and I've learned so much from those individuals. They've been wonderful people with him to work. I've worked with major philanthropists, billionaires who want to solve a problem. And so being able to weave in the storytelling as to how we work together to accomplish their objective. One thing I bring forward a lot is the importance of partnership. When each of those individuals, whether it was the CEO, whether it was a government through a public-private partnership, which was something that really Ronald Reagan spurred on uh, through the Thousand Points of Light program, or whether it's a small organization, you can't do it all. And you're not good at everything. People sometimes think, oh, I'm the best at everything. Well, you're not. You're only really good at a core set of things. And so you have to link arms with other people and align how you're doing your spending, align your activities towards common goals. And I think what's happening in our country right now is we've lost that alignment. 
we really have lost the alignment. And so we are not finding, I, I took Ronald Reagan's 80-20 rule and I changed it to the 60-40 rule uh, when I was working with industry and the Obama White House. They didn't always agree in the public health officials. And so my, my deal was, let's write down the 60% we can all agree on and let's be honest, we will never agree on this 40%. We're just never gonna agree on it. So we're gonna acknowledge that we don't agree. We're gonna set it aside and we're just gonna focus on the 60%. And we've got to get the country back to a willingness to do that. And the relationships that I built um, with people from the opposite party, uh, with individuals in public health are some of my strongest personal relationships I have to this day. Well, you better watch it. Somebody's gonna nominate you for something really big. <laughs> Lisa, I, I could talk to you forever, and it's just such a joy to, to have the opportunity to spend a, a little bit of time with you. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, and I wish you all the best success in the world for your work and for your, uh, your future endeavors, both through the remainder of your time with FAIR and then beyond. Uh, uh, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again and having you again on the show. Well, great. Thanks so much for having me. And people can learn more about the book at turnaroundbook.com or going on to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other indie bookstores and making the purchase. So I appreciate your having me. And when will it be out? October 5th. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for watching Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. We'll see you next time. Perfect, Lisa. Well done. Great. Thank you. It was so much fun. Yeah, you just did that flawlessly. Well done. <laughs> Um, so we'll, uh, Derek will make the file available to you after he posts it and, uh, we'll go from there. And then what I'm going to do when I get a video editor on board is I'll probably slice this into three different parts. It'll be a small, medium, and large, kind of a two minute okay. and then an eight to 12 minute. And then a long form, the long form I call the conversation because it kind of unfolds naturally. And I think you can see kind of the way it worked for us is it, it's, I, and Derek, you can comment on this, but it feels, at least for me anyway, very natural. Mm -hmm. um, it's not forced or contrived. And uh, I think it, for, for that reason, it may make for a, a little bit of a better advert for your, for your book uh, in certain instances, if you want to slice it up. Well, I appreciate it. And I'll also tell you that uh, I'm so glad we talked a lot about character and leadership because I would really love to affiliate, doesn't, not in a full-time basis, but affiliate with an institution that has that as a primary principle, whether it's a, a business school who's looking at business diplomacy, whether it is a school that's just trying to build leadership and character traits within their student population, or if it's some organization that's investing in that. So I may be using your, your, your video as a way of going, this is what I talk about. It's important. Please, please do. <laughs> um, I spent, it's funny because I actually spent time earlier this week on the campus of Dallas Baptist University. That's, um, where, my in, that's where she's going to grad school. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Um, so it, it's really a, a great school. The president is a friend of mine. He serves on Jim Dennison's board with me. And so if you'd ever liked an, an introduction, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I actually had lunch with a guy who is, quote, he's on YouTube uh, with a podcast. He bills himself as the Christian economist, and he correlates Christian principles to economic success. Um, not saying that it, they necessarily, uh, being a Christian makes you an economic success, but rather that free market theory and Christianity are, are closely uh, related. Um, so I'm happy to make those introductions when you're down here or beforehand, if you'd like. Because um, I think that, uh, especially for DBU, 
this would be, it would fall straight in line with what they're trying to do. I, it's funny because I actually have a change management process, which is one could argue is the same thing as turnarounds. Um, but my change management thesis is you have to start with the values of the corporation and how they link to the values of the individual. And if you can't communicate how the future state allows those values to remain aligned, then something's going to give. Either the change management effort's not going to be successful or alternatively, the individual is not going to be able to stay there. Yeah, no, that makes absolute, that's such makes absolute sense. And having just recently gone through a change of a senior manager, it was, it was truly the, the fundamental issue is that we just didn't agree on the vision and the value. Yeah. All right, well, this is terrific, Lisa. Um, Thanks well for doing done, And I'll look forward to, to uh, talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.